Welcome to the online gathering of West Village Church. If you are new here with us today, I want to welcome you. My name is Andrew, and, uh, and if you are just joining us for the very first time, I want to thank you. I know there's a lot of stuff going on on the internet these days, and so we're really thankful that you've chosen to spend a little bit of your time with us. And if you are new with us, I just want to let you know that our heart's desire is to see you moving from being a guest or a spectator with us to being part of our family. Uh, we know that in this time of social distancing and social isolation that uh, connecting with people is hard and challenging, but we have a lot of different ways that you can do that even online. And so I want to just invite you into that process. And there's a couple of simple ways that you can get started. First of all, if you look below me, you'll see a number. Uh, if you text your name to that number, one of our staff or one of our volunteers will be happy to uh, just connect with you and let you know some next steps. And of course, you can always just say, I want to get connected on the chat bar in the screen beside me and someone will be happy to connect with you further. Uh, over the last little bit, we've been going through a book of the Bible called the book of Esther. And uh, in particular, in this current moment, we think that this is a critical, a critical part of the Bible for us to engage in. And partly that's because uh, there's some similarities to the place that we find ourselves in. You see, in the book of Esther, what's going on is the people of God find themselves in a moment of crisis. And it's sort of an unexpected crisis. It takes them uh, all just very quickly. It happens very quickly. And what's so fascinating about this book is that throughout it, we don't see mention of God once, not a single time. You know, as we find ourselves in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, it's easy for us to look around and, and feel this crisis and feel the, the urgency of this moment. It's, it's somewhat unexpected, and we're trying to navigate what that looks like and how we respond to it. And as we look around, it might oftentimes see like God is absent. But in the same way that we are experiencing this now, the people of God experienced that at the time of Esther. But what's so fascinating is even though God has never mentioned, it's clear as we continue to wrestle through this book that he is present on every single page. And so this morning, uh, we're going to continue that journey. And I'll just quickly summarize where we've gone the last couple of weeks. So book of Esther, there's two sort of primary characters. Uh, one is the uh, guy by the name of Mordecai and then his niece, Esther. Uh, they are Jewish people finding themselves living at the height of the Persian Empire under the reign of King Xerxes. And they are people who have their foot kind of in two different worlds. On one hand, they have this Jewish religious heritage. And on the other hand, they find themselves thoroughly enmeshed in the dominant Persian culture of their, their era. And they come to this moment where they're sort of suppressing their, their faith in God for the betterment of their position in the empire. And yet they reach this crisis moment when a man named Haman, who's a rising star, uh, comes to the point of being second in command. And, and Mordecai decides he's not going to bow down to Haman and show him that deference. And Haman takes great offense and decides not only does he want to kill Mordecai, but he actually wants to kill all of Mordecai's people. At the same time, what's been happening is that Esther has been entered into this sort of uh, beauty pageant to replace the uh, dis disowned queen of Persia. And she ends up becoming queen of Persia. And so they come to this moment where Haman is wanting to kill all of the Jewish people. And they find themselves in this critical position where they have to choose who they're going to be. And what we see is a spiritual renewal takes place in their lives. And they together go and hatch a plan of how they're going to see what God has done through them and bringing them to these particular positions at this particular time that he might be able to preserve his people through them. And again, remember, God's not mentioned at all in this. So all of this is just happening. And, and we as readers are, are left to fill in the blanks. So the last scene that we saw was that Esther entered into the king's, uh, the king's courtroom. And that was an offense that was punishable by death. 
And so there was a great amount of risk and she was going to petition the king to save her people. He doesn't know that she's Jewish. He doesn't know that she's under threat. But she's very sneaky about it. So she comes in and, and he decides that he is not going to kill her. He extends his scepter to her, which means that she doesn't have to die, which is good news. Uh, but rather than just sitting there and, and giving him the whole story right up front, she actually wants to, to kind of win him over a little bit. So she invites him and Haman. Remember, Haman's the guy who wants to see her and all her people killed to a banquet. It's a way that she's kind of buttering up King Xerxes. Now Haman comes to this banquet and he has no idea that Queen Esther is a Jew, that she's under threat. And he's thinking really, really highly of himself. You know, he's second in command. He went to the king and asked the king to exterminate a, a people group for him. And the king said, yes. So he's got immense amount of power. He's wealthy. And now he's just been invited to this exclusive event. And yet, as he leaves, he passes Mordecai at the gate, and once again, Mordecai refuses to bow to him, and he goes home, and he starts reciting to his wife and his friends all the good things in, the life, in his life, and yet, as he looks at it all, he says, all of this cannot satisfy me because Mordecai, the Jew, is not bowing to me. And he's filled with sadness. He kind of has a functional adult temper tantrum. Well, his wife and his advisors, uh, they are being very supportive and they say, well, don't worry about it, Haman. Why don't you just go get a pole, stick it in our backyard, and tomorrow go visit the king and just ask him if you can have Mordecai impaled on this pole. Well, Haman feels a lot better. He thinks this is a great plan. He's already said, I can kill all of Mordecai's people, so he's not going to mind if I get started on this just a little bit early. And that's where we have left things off. And so what we're seeing is this continually tragic decline of Mordecai and Esther. It looks like they're falling further and further and further towards destruction. And this complete rise of Haman. And yet what we're going to see today as we continue reading on is a complete unexpected reversal of this moment. So while that's all going on, this is what's happening for King Xerxes. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Esther chapter 6. And we're going to start right here in verse 1. It says, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So just to stop here for a moment, King Xerxes is having a pretty ordinary average time. Lots going on in his mind. Perhaps he's reflecting on the fact that he just got defeated by a bunch of Greeks. We know that happened around this time. Regardless of what's going on, he can't sleep. And so he does what almost any of us would do. He wants something monotonous to help get his mind off whatever he's thinking of. And so he asks his attendants to come and read him what would seem like a pretty boring book. The record of current events is essentially what it is. But it just so happens that the passage that they start reading from tells the story of Mordecai uh, foiling this assassination attempt. And if we go back to Esther chapter 2, we see this exact scene. Right after Esther ascends to the throne as queen, Mordecai comes across this assassination attempt and he, through Esther, warns the king. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that uh, Mordecai would have expected a reward from this. This was not uncommon practice. You see, an emperor like Xerxes had many, many enemies, and he had to make sure that his inner circle was super, super solid. So if someone did something like that, they could be expected to be rewarded because the king didn't want anyone to feel like there was discontent, that they hadn't been treated fairly, because then there was a link in his chain a chink, chink in his armor, so to speak, uh, something that someone could try and use to again 
get at him. And so he would have been mortified to know this. And we know that this is about five years after the event. So just imagine Mordecai expecting this reward. It doesn't happen. The disappointment, the frustration. In fact, at that same time, Haman comes to power. And here Xerxes randomly comes across this passage. So he asks his attendants, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? And the king, um, and they said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who is in the court? So he knows, like, I got to do something about this right away. urgencies in. So he's like, who is in the court? Who is there that I can talk about this, uh, about this with right now? Now, who's in the court? It says that Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. So on the very same night that Haman comes and has this plan to kill Mordecai, it's the same night that the king has this dream, uh, has a sleepless night, has this book open, reads about Mordecai. You can see the irony that's building here. Mordecai is this linchpin between Haman's plans and what's going on with the king right now. So his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the outer court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Now when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Now again, I mean, we, we've been painting this picture already, but think about the place that, that Haman finds himself in. He's ascended to this position of second in command of the greatest empire of that era. He has wealth. In fact, he has so much influence that he can just go to the king and say, hey, there's this people group that I think is a threat. Can we just wipe them out? And the king says, sure, I trust you, Haman. He has this beautiful moment where he gets invited to this exclusive party with the king's wife, Esther, and the king that no one else in the kingdom has been invited for. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's like, I got it going on. Listen how the Bible describes it. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? You see, for Haman at this point, life revolves around him. Even though he's a servant of the king, functionally, life revolves around him. He's the center of it. And so, of course, what's he thinking? He's thinking, well, man, there's no one who's worthy of the king's honor more than me. He's got to be talking about me. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn, a horse that the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to, the one, to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is a, what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman's suggestion here is completely over the top. It's audacious. He's essentially functionally saying, I want you to make this person king for the day. The honor that would be bestowed on the king is what gets bestowed on this person. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, I want someone who would be this person's equal, 
a noble prince, so someone of equal standing and importance, to be reduced to the position of a slave, because it's not a, uh, it's not a noble who robed the king or led the horse around and proclaimed how good he was. That would be the job of a slave. Haman wants to see himself so elevated that someone who would be close to his rank or position would be utterly humiliated before him. This is the esteem, this is the pride that is shaping Haman's life. Now there's a deep, deep irony that we as a reader have because we know something is off here. But as we've read the story, we can see how Haman's coming to this conclusion. I mean, everything seems to be going well for him. Everything that he wants, he desires, minus this little hiccup of Mordecai not bowing before him is going his way. I don't know if, if you've ever had this experience where someone's come to you and they've shared a story and, and you think you know where it's going and they build this up and you get this anticipation and anticipation and anticipation and then you get to the ending and it's not at all what you think it's going to be. There's something shocking and jarring about that experience that quickly and utterly shows you that uh, there's something I must have missed along the way. Reminds me of a, a couple of years ago, I was visiting, uh, my family was visiting our, uh, my in-laws. They have a, a lake house out in Alberta, and we were, we were just getting ready to leave. All the family was getting ready to leave, and my, my mother and father-in-law were staying there for another couple of days just to hang out, the two of them. So we were just asking, you know, what are you going to do uh, now that we're all leaving? And uh, so my mother-in-law, she started sharing, you know, this is what my plan is going to be. So she said, hey, you know, I think, you know, it's just the two of us. is going to be really, really good. So I think maybe we'll pack a picnic lunch, have a couple of drinks, go out to the boat and suddenly I see you know my father-in-law's head perk up and he's like okay I think I know where this is going okay okay and she continues on she said hey, we'll go out to the boat and then you know we're going to drive out there's not too many people on the lake right now so we're going to drive out to where there's no other boats around us it's just going to be me and and him and and then we're going to sit in the sun we're going to put some blankets out on the deck of the boat and, and you can tell like he's really digging this idea he's like all right all right all right all right I know where this is going she said, yeah, we're going to lay those, those towels out. We're going to lie down. And we're going to, wait for it, read. And you could just see all of us suddenly looking at her like, this is not where we thought this story was going. And the one who, of course, was most disappointed of all was my father-in-law, who's looking around wondering, did I miss the memo? Is, is read code for something that I just missed out on? Because this is not at all where I thought we were going, honey. It was shocking and jarring for him. His expectations had been built up in a particular direction. Suddenly, they were utterly smashed. So just imagine how Haman feels when we get to verse 10. The king says to him, Go at once. Get the robe and the horse just as you have suggested. And he's thinking, yes, yes, yes. For, wait for it, Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Haman thinks he's in control of his own destiny. He thinks he knows how the world works. And suddenly, in a moment, something so small, something so insignificant as the king not being able to sleep dramatically changes his destiny. We're going to unpack this a little more in a second, but I, I want you to hold on to that. 
It's important to understand what's going on here. Continues on in verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. So he robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But listen to this, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. If you were tracking with us a few weeks ago, you remember a similar scene where uh, Mordecai discovers that Haman has uh, made this this, uh, edict that's going to, to wipe out his entire people group, and he covers his head in grief and mourns. And now we see this dramatic reversal of fates. Haman rushed home and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And now it changes. No longer his friends. They're kind of trying to distance themselves. Now they're just advisors. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. You know, what's so fascinating about this particular chapter in Esther is this is where everything changes. From this point onwards, we're going to see a dramatic shift. We've seen this, uh, this continual plunge for the people of God represented through Mordecai and Esther is that it looks like they're getting closer and closer to doom and this, this seeming elevation of Haman as a representative of evil as he continues to rise in power and suddenly something that is completely out of his control that he has no power over happens and everything changes. But if we've tracked well with the story of God, we realize that this is a theme that runs throughout. You see, the, the attitude of Haman is one that's not unfamiliar with us. Last week, Chris brought us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. And we see this scene that takes place. Adam and Eve, the very first humans that God creates, he creates them good. He gives them authority over all creation to nurture it, to care for it. And he asks one simple thing. It says, I want you to trust me still to be God. You have a power and authority. You're made in my image and likeness to share in my glory. But I'm going to put this tree in the middle of the garden. It represents the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to ask you to trust me to be the one who's still God, who still defines the way that you should care for and, and, and um, nurture this creation. And they flourish, and creation flourishes around them. But one day dark spiritual force in the form of a serpent comes to them and he starts to ask them is this really what this is all about is this really what God is saying and and he tells them you know God has put this tree here not because he wants you to trust him but because he's holding back from you because he knows that if you get it, you can be God. You can decide how to construct Eden in your image for your glory. And what does it say? It says, 
that they looked at the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for knowledge and wisdom, and they took it and they ate it. What was going on? Because this isn't really about fruit. This is about pride. See, in that moment, Adam and Eve, they felt like they didn't need God, that they could actually do a better job of caring for Eden without him. They wanted the garden without God. They wanted the kingdom without the king. They wanted Eden without the eternal one. And the reality is that since that point, each one of us in human history has gone through that same process where we believe that we can be God in our own strength and by our own pride. We lift ourselves up to that position. That's exactly what we see take place right here in the person of Haman. He believes that the world revolves around him and he's working hard to construct his own perfect paradise. But something happens Mordecai isn't part of the plan and suddenly he comes to this crisis moment where he realizes I got to do something and the only thing that he can think of is to get rid of Mordecai. And it brings him into this complete and utter confrontation moment between the creator God of the universe because here's the reality. When we start elevating ourselves to the point of God and we act out in rebellion against him and the truth is that we're very terrible gods and we start making a complete and utter mess of his world. And God has to do something about it. The, the ancient scribes who wrote parts of the books of Proverbs, they wrote Proverbs as a way for the people of God to navigate through how God had created the world with wisdom so they could see how we're supposed to live in it. And they, they would write things like, Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or God mocks the proud mockers, but shows grace to the humble. And this is exactly what we're seeing take place right here in Esther chapter 6. Haman, he is a proud mocker. I mean, he simply thinks that he can waltz around and condemn many people to death so casually. And yet, how hilarious it is, is it? that something so small as the king not sleeping completely foils everything that he thinks he's built and is in control of. And we see this thread go all the way throughout the Bible until we come to Jesus. In Jesus, again, God incarnate walking around the earth, what does he do? He confronts the proud. That's why he's constantly getting into confrontations with the religious leaders of his day because here's the thing, church, you don't just have to be a Haman to be someone who's trying to elevate yourself to status of God. Sometimes you're trying to create your own Eden through your own good and right works. You could be a completely religious person who's coming and watching the gathering every week. Maybe before this you came and attended a gathering every week. You do all the right things. But the truth is you're doing them as a way to obligate God to yourself. You're trying to say that the world actually revolves around me and God, you're just in orbit around me to accomplish what I want. And so I'm gonna do these things and then you owe me one. Because ultimately none of this is about me getting anything other than my glory. And that's what, exactly what Haman wanted. He wanted glory for himself. But when Jesus comes, he's the exact opposite. He doesn't want glory for himself. He wants glory for the Father.
You know, it's interesting as we reflect on this COVID moment. I think what it's done is it is exposed our our God complex. I mean, just think back to before this all started. I mean, maybe mid-February, you're hearing about COVID in China. You're thinking, ah, oh, that's never going to touch us. We're too advanced. We're too uh, technologically savvy. We have too good of medical care. Our governments are too organized. We have too much knowledge. There's no way this thing can touch us. Our culture was saturated in pride. We felt like we were God. And how hilarious is it? It's something that's seemingly so small, so innocuous on the surface. I mean, the coronavirus dies from soap. From soap, all you gotta do is wash your hands. And yet, something so small, something so fragile has come into our very existence and threatened everything that we have thought our life was built upon in a matter of days. Our economy, our healthcare system, our system of government, our societal structures, our community. Remember that proverb, God mocks the proud mockers? I don't think God is laughing at our tragedy, but I do think the irony is not lost upon him. We have thought so highly of ourselves, and yet something so simple, so small, has revealed just how fragile we truly are. And so what's happening now is that pride that was there before COVID came is actually being exposed, and and we're reacting. There's There's two different ways that you can respond in these moments of crisis, and we see them both played out in the book of Esther. First, we see that the way, first we see the way that Haman responded to crisis. You see, when he got to this moment where everything switched for him, what does he do? He goes home and he's filled with sorrow. He talks to his friends, and what do they say to him? They say, surely you're going to come to ruin. He despairs. He despairs. He despairs because he's looked upon his own weakness and realized, I can't be God, and he has no hope if he can't be God that anything else can save him. And for some of us, this, this, this virus, this pandemic, it's, it's, it's got us to this point where we've come to the edge of ourselves and maybe you're still there and you're white knuckling and you're thinking, man, I'm just going to continue to do all these social distancing measures. I'm going to work really hard to try and save as much money or invest in minerals or whatever it is that you think is going to get you through this. I'm going to be the person who outsmarts this thing. But something's going to happen that you can't handle, that you couldn't predict And if you're relying on your own reserves, you're going to despair because you're going to realize there's nothing left. You have nothing left to give. You see, despair is just the flip side of the coin of pride. Despair comes when we rely heavily on ourselves, when our world revolves around ourselves, and suddenly we realize that we aren't enough. 
But we have this section, a second response, and that's the response of Mordecai and Esther. You see, they too went, to a, went through a crisis moment. But when they got to this moment, their response was very different than Haman. Yes, there was sorrow. Yes, there was sadness. But it was very, very different. You see, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes. That's a representation of repentance, of going to God and saying, I've been trying to be God and I am doing a really terrible job and I need to turn and trust in you. It's a picture of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, blessed are you when you recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy, when you recognize that you don't have it all together. Because then you're going to come to me. It's like going back to the garden. Instead of saying, hey God, I want to be God. I think I'm going to do a better job. It's finally saying, hey God, I don't need the fruit. I have you. I can trust that you're in control. You're the God of the garden. I want us to be cautious here, though. Because there, there is a danger in this. And the danger is that we start to look at Mordecai and we start to turn Mordecai into just another way that we start to try and promote ourselves as God we start to think to ourselves, I'm going to be just as, as humble as Mordecai. I'm just going to you know, humble myself in this moment. And it becomes sort of this weird religious act where we try and recreate this thing. But there, there's a problem in that. Because if we start humbling ourselves, what we're going to find is even in that we fail. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and our proclivities to continually go back and try and make ourselves God. And so even in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, you should say, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to trust in God. And yet you start to see yourself continually start to, to try and control things. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your friends. The other day I walked into the park. I wanted to throw the ball for my dog. And there was like this group of people there having this entire party. I'm talking like, road hockey, there was chairs all packed together, there were people throwing frisbees, kids playing on the playground, which was supposed to be closed. And man, I was just furious. I was like, how dare you? Don't you know this is pandemic time? And I wanted to go over there and give them a piece of my mind or call the police or something. And trust me, this is so hypocritical for me because I'm not even like a crazy uh, social distancing, not like uh, I've been pretty cautious, but at the same time, like I'm constantly evaluating the statistics and I'm not super, super concerned. But there was this part of me that wanted to continue to try and be God and be in control. Because why? Because my Eden had suddenly been disrupted. I wanted to throw the ball for my dog and these people got in the way of it, so they had to be gotten rid of. My proclivity is to continue to make the world revolve around me, to continue to try and be in control, to continue to try and be God. No matter how hard I try to humble myself, that is the direction that my heart continues to go. So what do we do? If we know that this is the type of person that we need to be to weather a storm like the coronavirus, and yet we know that we consistently cannot get there, what do we do? Well, here's the beautiful reality. You see, Mordecai was a very imperfect person, but what we see played out here is a picture of what gets fully filled out in Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote this wonderful poem, or, or at least wrote down this wonderful poem about Jesus. And I want you just to see the parallels that we see played out in Esther. 
says that Jesus being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So let's just take a look at Haman for a second. Haman came to power. How did he use that power? For his own advantage. But Jesus was in power, and yet he did not consider that power to be used for his own advantage. But what does he do? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus goes to the cross. He puts himself in harm's way, though he did not do anything wrong. We look at Mordecai and Esther, and they were imperfect people. They had to come to a point of crisis, yet Jesus did not have to come to a point of crisis. He entered into the crisis that we created. And he put himself in harm's way, and he actually took the full weight of that crisis upon himself. But listen to what happened at that cross, at that moment, at that place where it seemed like all was lost. Where it seemed like Mordecai was going to be killed. Something so simple, so beautiful happens. A baby is born and that baby becomes a man and that man goes to the cross and that cross does not crush him. It says in verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. What did Haman want? He wanted every knee to bow for him. But check this out. Jesus doesn't want every knee to bow for him for his own sake. It says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. Jesus' glory, his moment of exaltation was not about him. It was actually about bringing glory to God. What was our job in the garden? Our job in the garden was to bring glory to God. Church, we want the glory for ourselves all the time. And that's why our heart continually moves towards putting ourselves in that place. And yet, Jesus was the only one who could truly humble himself and bring that glory to God. And when we come to a point where we recognize the deep need that we have for Jesus, then and only then can our hearts start to change we start to come before him. We start to say, Jesus, I want to be humble, but I can't. But I thank you that you were. His spirit can come in and it can start to change who we are. And I just want to share two ways that that takes place. Number one, it changes the way we think because it changes what we love. You see, Right from the get-go, when we chose to pursue ourselves, to elevate ourselves above God in the garden, it changed the orders of our love. They became disordered. We started to elevate things that shouldn't be elevated, and it led to catastrophe. Here's a great example just right here from the story. Haman loved himself. He loved himself so much that he was willing to wipe out an entire people group when Mordecai didn't show him the deference that he felt like he deserved. Uh, we look at that and we say, that's an egomaniac. There's something wrong with that. We all recognize that. And yet, most of us would look at our own lives and say, yeah, but I'm, I'm not like that. 
But just think about the way that you are like. How many times have you come home and you expected your spouse to like maybe have dinner ready or maybe have the house clean or something like that and they didn't do it? What did you do? Did you show them love and compassion? How often was it the exact opposite? You railed on them. You laid down condemnation. You blasted them. Maybe you're watching this and you're like a teenager and, and you know, you asked your parents to drive you somewhere. And they got, you know, in the car five minutes late and you got dropped off and your friends were already busy doing something and you just let your parents have it because they inconvenienced you and your schedule. Or maybe there's a coworker that you've had and they've made a mistake on the project that you're working on and what do you do? You, you go and tell all your other coworkers behind their back what a horrible person they are, what a terrible coworker they are, all the mistakes that they've made. You know, we, we may not be as uncivilized as, uh, as Haman in that we're going to go and commit genocide, but the truth is we commit all kinds of heinous acts towards each other when our loves are disordered when we start to elevate ourselves and our own needs and our own desires around the people, above the people around us. And yet, something changes. When Jesus has the first place in our life, then it's his priorities, his desires that start to take hold of us and our loves become ordered. When he has first priority in our life, then and only then can we actually recreate the Eden that we are called to live in. A place of peace, a place of flourishing. And a second thing happens when we submit ourselves to Jesus. He actually can use us. Jesus is going to work whether we like it or not. He's going to work around us. I mean, Haman was not necessarily in line with God's plan, so to speak. He wasn't trying to do what God wanted, and yet God used him in dramatic ways. But think about Mordecai and Esther. I mean, this is exactly Mordecai's point in a couple of chapters earlier when he told Esther, you know, whether you choose to act in God's uh, timing right now, that's up to you. God's going to work no matter what. But perhaps for this very moment, God actually wanted to put you in this place so that he could use you. And here's the beautiful thing, church. When we start to submit ourselves to Jesus, when he becomes Lord of our life, when we humble ourselves before him, then he doesn't just work around us. He can actually work with us. And that's what God wanted from the very beginning to partner with us for his creation. Just imagine with me, what does it look like when God doesn't just have to pursue your kids to disciple your kids around you, but when he can actually work with you? What does it look like for you when God doesn't just have to work around you to be on mission to the people of Victoria, but when he can actually work through you? When God's working out the new heavens and the earth, the restoration of all things, and he can actually use you as part of that process. There's so much joy that you can have even in the midst of something like this. You stop looking around this as a colossal inconvenience to you and you start looking at it as a, as a, a place that God's brought you into for his purposes. And you become a partner in the work that he wants to do rather than an obstacle that he works around. There's a second way I think that we see pride manifesting itself in this story, and I want to quickly talk about this. You know, as we go back to the very beginning, we see this series of what seem like coincidental events. The king can't sleep. He has this book open, and he opens to this particular section where Mordecai 
is recorded as having saved him from assassination attempt. As we talked about earlier, I just, I just imagine the way that Mordecai would feel. He's looking around, and he probably had big plans. Like, I'm, I'm going to save the king from this assassination attempt, and then I could be raised up into this position of authority, and maybe I could actually do some really good work for God and his people. And then it doesn't happen. He, he's looking around wondering, God, what are you doing? What's happening here? See, in that moment, Mordecai had this crisis where things didn't work out the way he thought, and and we all go through this. We look around and and things don't make sense, but we think that we have the foresight and the foreknowledge to know exactly the perfect way for them to work out for the best possible outcome. But how crazy is that? That's pride. That's us thinking that we are God, that we have in our limited, maybe 80, 100-year lifespan, if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, the ability to know how everything is going to be perfectly played out. And yet, we have this attitude all the time, and so we're coming into this moment of COVID, and, and we don't understand, and we're wondering, what are you trying to do in this, God? Like, churches can't meet. They can't gather together. That doesn't seem good. Do you, do, you know what, do you know what you're doing? I was chatting with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and he was sharing with me just some frustrations that had happened in his life. Him and his wife had generously opened up their house twice. They had people living with them. They had poured into them emotionally and spiritually and physically and financially tons and tons of time and resources. And they're imperfect people, so there's lots of stuff going on with that too. But the reality is, is they had done something that seemed so completely in line with the will of God. And at the end of those times, these people would come out and they said, I don't think there's anything different. I don't know what we actually accomplished accomplished in this. And for many of us, this is the reality of our lives. You work so, so hard to pour in, disciple your kid, and then they seem to go off the rails. You do a job in the hopes that you can build influence, and yet it doesn't go anywhere. You serve and serve and serve at a church, and you watch as it still continues to fail, and you wonder, what are you doing, God? I've shared this story a couple of times before, but when my wife and I were first married, we experienced what I call a series of unfortunate events. My wife owned this house in, uh, in another city and, uh, in, in Alberta, and, uh, and so we decided when we got married that we knew it, we wanted to come to Victoria and help the West Village Church, and we thought, this is great. We're going to sell her house. We're going to have a down payment for a house in Victoria. We're going to be able to move into a neighborhood, root ourselves there, be on mission, maybe see a church planted. We're super excited. We thought we had all the plans figured out, and we went to sell the house, and, and the oil prices crashed. And so we decided, okay, you know what? We're not going to get the same amount that we, we think we should have, so we're going we're gonna to wait, and we're going to come back in another year, and we're going to try again, and we did, and it got worse, not better. And by the time we ended up selling the house, we made nothing on it. God, what are you doing? The same time, we felt that God had called us to start our family, and so we started trying to get pregnant, and a year went by, and two years went by, and nothing happened. It was painful, and we were looking at God and wondering, God, do you know what you're doing? Because we have great plans for our life. They seem so, so good. Here's this funny thing. We go back to the story. If Mordecai got what he wanted five years ago, it would have completely negated this very moment. 
But because Mordecai had to wait, the exaltation that he desired was fulfilled in a time of great need for his people. And as I think back to the story of those things that happened in our life, for many years we wrestled with it and we wondered why God was doing what he was doing. And eventually, through his grace, he actually opened up an opportunity for us to buy a house from some friends. And we got into that house, and at the very same time, we found out we were pregnant. And it just so happened that at that very moment, there was a couple that moved in. They were around our age, also pregnant. Wife was a nurse. My wife, Shannon's a nurse. And we started getting to know them. And they were only there for three months. But in that three months, because we had all of these things connecting us at the same time, we were able to build a deep relationship with them. We were able to invite them into our life. And eventually they came and were part of our church and our community group. And today they might actually be sitting in our living room watching this gathering with us because Jesus wanted to pursue them in that moment. We would have never been able to anticipate that. We didn't have any control. We didn't know what was going to happen four or five years down the road. And yet God did. And he knew that at this very moment, his purposes were going to be worked together for his glory. Church, that should be such an encouraging note for us. As we finish off here, I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, you might be watching this and you're thinking, man, this is just a coincidence. You stumbled on this, you were surfing through a news feed and you're bored, just happened to have time off because, hey, it's COVID. Maybe... You know, you're searching for something and you're searching because you're in this time of pandemic and you think it's just so random. I, I popped into this or this person that I had, haven't talked to for years to share this on their newsfeed and it just caught my attention. If there's anything that we can see from Esther, it's that Jesus does not make coincidences. He actually has purposes behind what he's doing. And I, I want to appeal to you and say that I don't think it's a coincidence that you're watching this. In fact, I think this is Jesus actually working all of these things together for this very moment so that he can reveal himself to you because he wants you to know him. As I finish off here, there's a reality to this story that I think should encourage us. One of the very last things that is said is, is what's said by the advisors and, and uh, Haman's wife to Haman. They say, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. And that term Jewish origin, literally translated is of the seed of the Jews. And that term seed has deep theological significance in the Bible. It goes all the way back again to Genesis. You know, we keep going back to Genesis. Where God promises Eve that even though she's fallen, even though she's rebelled against him, that from her seed, he will actually bring about the restoration and redemption of humankind. And we see that promise continue on through Abraham. We see through Moses, through David, through all of the Bible right here. We see that God's promises are being fulfilled, that he is actually fulfilling them by protecting his people in this moment. And of course, it culminates in Jesus. And yet, at the same time, we see that the forces of evil constantly want to try and wipe away God's promise, want to keep doing away with God's promise. Right now, it can feel like evil is winning, that it's winning, that it's trying to deal, do away with God's promises. And yet, we know that at the cross, this, of course, was not the case. 
And so what's interesting about this passage is that we see this dramatic reversal, and, and the dramatic reversal actually comes when evil throws itself fully against the people of God, and yet God uses that and switches it around to actually redeem and restore his people. Haman uses every last arrow in his arsenal to try and get rid of the people of God, and yet that actually leads to their redemption and flourishing And that, in small form, is a picture of what takes place at the center of history, where it looked like humankind could not move any lower, where we killed God himself on the cross, and yet it is by his death, the very means that we tried to rid ourselves of him, that he brings about our redemption. So friends, as we are in this pandemic moment, I want you to know that evil will not win, and not even the evil inside of you that God can actually take the broken parts of our life and renew them for his good purposes. And so to end, I want to give us two invitations. The first is that crisis offers us a choice. And the choice is to give into our pride in this moment and allow that to crush us. But recognizing that in the end, we put ourselves right in against God, and just like Haman, we will not prevail. Or two, to repent, to humble ourselves, to know that God can use us even in our brokenness and to allow him to continue to humble us in this moment and make us more like him for his purposes. Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to come here to read your word, to be reminded that we are insufficient as God and to humble ourselves and come to you and even recognize that as we humble ourselves, our hearts still desire to elevate ourselves. And yet we come to you knowing that you were the one who walked humbly for us. And so we ask that you continue to enter into our lives, that you continue to change us, that you continue to bring us to a point where we recognize that you are indeed God. And that when we do that, you would continue to use us as partners to accomplish your purposes. Amen.